0: You're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit bentreechurch.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I love love to come to church with my church family and be a part of worship. You guys sing. Uh, I don't know... uh, it's not every church that sings like this, so I love to sing with you and hear your voices there. So, uh, Merry Christmas. Um, I love the decorations in this place. Do you love that? Man, the, thank you for the team that put that together. You guys are the best of that, and then the band rehearsing so much, uh, getting this ready for us in this Christmas season. Um, By the way, not everyone gets a church uh, pastor that looks like Santa. (laughs) You're welcome. So, it's hard to maintain this shape. So, uh, they say get in shape, and I said round is a shape. So, wasn't last week just wonderful too with thankful sunday i just love that it was wonderful singing uh pastor hal thank you for preaching and bringing the word ephesians 2 now for folks just joining us we usually work our way through whole books of the bible verse by verse and we're currently in a multi-year study of the book of john uh but we take breaks from uh time to time and do short series there's still uh still scripturally based, and this one is. Uh, so we're in this series. We'll get back to uh, John in January. But as the Christmas season begins, I want us to take a break and begin a four-week series called Songs of the Servant. Now, I think you're going to love this, especially in the Christmas season, because this is going to open up some seriously good stuff about who Jesus is and who God is and how we follow him. So before we go any further, though, let me just pray for us. Would you just bow your head? God, our Father, we come before you today in your matchless name of your son, Jesus. You've given a gift to us, Lord, and as this Christmas season reminds, reminds us of Jesus' birth, of God taking on flesh, taking our sin upon his back as his perfect sacrifice, living in obedience to you and your plan of redemption, dying on the cross for us, God. We, we can't thank you enough for raising him from the dead. So God, our prayer this morning is that you would use these words of your Holy Scripture to mold and shape us into the people you designed us to be. Holy Spirit, move our hearts and minds. Shape us, mold us today. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, let me just ask, show of hands, who likes Christmas music? Raise your hands. Who who? It's not their favorite. Okay. Hey, thank you for being honest there. My tastes are so eclectic. I love Christmas music. I love all kinds of music. Uh, I'll repent. I don't love all kinds of music as I think about it. I tend to be with Christmas music old school. I like the old stuff. I mean, I love the the hymns and carols we sang, but I like guys like Johnny Mathis and Bing Crosby. Any Elvis fans out there Christmas? I am too. I love Elvis. And yes, I like some newer pop songs, uh, but I, I really like the songs like we did this morning. But I like the old, old stuff. Is anybody with me on that? The old, old stuff? Christmas music goes way back. I I researched this this morning, uh, getting ready, I mean, for this morning. Uh, The oldest Christmas carol comes from the 300s, as in 300. It was called Jesus Light of the Nations, also known as Jesus Illuminates All. But today, I'm going to introduce you to... Uh, uh, four songs, well, one of them today, that are a thousand years older than that. Now, some of you are good at math. Some of you are not. Uh, So this is way before Jesus is born. The little Christmas series that we're doing for the month of December is centered on these four Christmas songs found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. In fact, if you want to be turning there, you can. Chapter 42. But they are Christmas songs But they're not like you might think of Christmas songs. In fact, 750 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, these are written about Jesus. They're not typical at all. Mariah Carey is not going to sing one of the songs. You're not going to hear that. Uh, These songs are Hebrew poetry, and, and we don't know the melody, But that's okay, that's okay, because it's the meaning, it's the words we get. If you look in your Bible, you see how it's offset there? That's indicative of the the Hebrew poetry. But our goal is we study each song each week that will culminate then on Christmas Eve. These four songs are known as the servant songs. Now, before we get to our text, I want to give us some framework for us And what we mean by that phrase, servant songs, all four songs describe a mysterious servant of God who uh, is exalted by God the Father personally. Now, before Jesus is born, Jewish interpretation of these songs was kind of divided in, in at least two giant schools. Some Jewish theologians thought, well, these songs are talking about the Jewish people Themselves, Israel itself. And the thought was, well, it talks about a suffering servant. And and so what they thought was, well, this is clearly uh, talking about Israel because they're always uh, have suffered. And although facing massive suffering and the Jewish people uh, have done, ultimately, they would say that nation of Israel would be exalted because they would play a crucial role in the world's redemption. That has a lot of truth to it. But then there were some Jewish scholars before Jesus came, believed these songs were prophesying about the coming Messiah. That's what the majority of people thought. The, the Messiah, or you could call him the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the promised one, would be a savior who would be this conquering king over Israel's enemies and would set up an earthly reign. Upon the earth for all eternity, they believed this Messiah would grow to be a king like King David, the great king, but a new King David, but a descendant of. Does that make sense? But the problem for many of the Jewish scholars back in the day was these four servant songs describe not only a triumphal king, but a suffering servant, a servant. Now, the Jewish scholars and teachers, those two things, they didn't seem to go together. Because when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, suddenly the meaning of these songs became clearer. To a very few, but very, game very clear, if you'll read in, in, uh, about Simeon and Anna in the temple, you remember that story? The two older Jewish people that were in the temple, they were very old, waiting for the promised Messiah. And when they encounter Jesus as this little babe, when his parents bring him in to dedicate him, because he's the firstborn, they say, this is the Messiah, both of them separately. And then the Christmas story says that the shepherds and the Magi worshipped the Messiah. They, and then obviously Mary and Joseph realized they had been told by the angel Gabriel. But other than that, there were very few who saw Jesus as this promised one when he was born. It was not until Jesus had lived his life, died on a Roman cross, then was seen alive by hundreds and hundreds of people and they interacted, that these servant songs begin to make sense after he was taken back to heaven. That's because the four servant songs depict a Messiah who is not just a triumphal king, but also a suffering servant, who, through his suffering, brings justice and salvation. Now the reason we study these songs. Is that they have significantly influenced Christian understanding of the mission, the ministry, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because they're straight from God the Father. So let's look at the first song, shall we? Let's just break this apart. This is what we do. We just preach the Bible, right? Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 42. This is God speaking through his prophet Isaiah. God says, behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Notice the capital S. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now let's play like we don't know that this is talking about Jesus. Let's just play like that. He's talking about Jesus. But let's, let's play like we don't know. Let's play like we uh, don't understand and then let's explore the prophecy and then compare it to what we find in the Bible and then specifically in the New Testament. Make sense? In the previous chapter, chapter 41, you need to know Israel is described as God's servant. But here in chapter 42, it changes. We know it changes because in 42, it begins with the word, behold. Behold. In other words, God is introducing someone special, someone new into the story, a servant. By the way, in Hebrew, the word behold means behold. God's calling special attention. He's saying, look, 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 look. Let's do some detective work on verse one, shall we? Make sure you have your Bible out in front of you or on your phone and And do some underlining. Let's start with the basics. God says, behold my servant. It's God's servant that is being presented to the people. By the way, that's one of the ways that we know it's not talking about Israel as a nation being the servant. Because now God is talking to Israel. Then God adds, in whom I uphold. That word uphold literally means to hold on to, to support by the hand. So think, God is holding on to this servant, giving power to this servant. The servant is connected to God, to the Father. But then God says, my chosen in whom my soul delights. So this servant has been chosen a selection has been made, a choice has been made by God the Father. Or another way to say it is the servant is a servant according to the will of God the Father. Does that make sense? We can't get away from the idea that God makes sovereign choices, can we? And we can, assure, we can assume it, it is God the Father announcing this new servant to his people Israel That there is a reason in his choosing for this particular servant. Do you see that? He's got a plan in choosing this servant. There is a purpose for this particular servant. A plan has been made by God the Father. But look at that line there in your own Bible when God says, In whom my soul delights. There are a pair of passages in the New Testament that we should consider. The first one is in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. Do you remember that? Verse 10 describes that when Jesus came up out of the water immediately, John the Baptist describes the heavens splitting open and the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Not a dove. Descending like a dove. And in verse 11, it describes a voice that came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. In other words, I take delight in you. All four Gospels record that same event that we read about in Mark. Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, And they confirm what God the Father says about Jesus. Isn't that interesting? This is a confirmation of the first verse of the song. Is it not? Is it not? Go Okay, back to the first Christmas song. First servant song. God states, I have put my spirit, capital S, upon him. Notice that capital S. This is referring to God's spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity. This is really interesting. God the Father who is speaking here in Isaiah 42 is referring to another person, isn't he? With a title, Spirit. What we are seeing is the Trinity at work. The doctrine of the Trinity. One God. Existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and say it with me, God the Holy Spirit. Now, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here because we're playing like we're supposed to be playing like we don't know who the servant is yet. God the Father is referring to this mysterious servant. He's going to put Holy Spirit on him. Now, how do we know the Father's not uh, is referring to someone else and not just himself? Because of the way he says it. We see Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit of God descending like a dove, descending onto Jesus. Check out the last line of verse one in your Bible right there. God says, he will bring the nations, he will bring forth justice To the nations. Or, in other words, God the Father is putting His Spirit, Holy Spirit, on this mysterious servant so that this servant will bring forth justice to the nations. Do you get that? Write this down. This is important. God empowers the servant with the Holy Spirit to bring justice to the nations. God empowers the servant with the Holy Spirit to bring justice to the nations. Now, what does justice mean? And why does the servant need to bring justice to the nations? Well, in its truest sense, justice assumes that there's a thing called right and wrong the right adheres to the law and wrong does not adhere to the law it's not a hard concept the right acts according to the law it is just the wrong acts contrary to the law it is unjust so to bring about justice would mean to judge all people and bring them in line with the law now stay with me stay with me what do we know from romans 3:23 This is the one you should have memorized. It says that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many people? All people. That's what it says. And do you remember what it says just three chapters over? John 6, 23, the first half of that verse. For the wages of sin is death. Now, this is bad news, isn't it? That's that's horrible news. All have sinned and the punishment for all those who have sinned is death. A second death, a spiritual death, a separation from God. If you didn't know, the word death literally means a separation. So back to our song. This is not a happy verse, is it? In this first uh, verse of the song, this special agent of God, this servant has been given the spirit of God to bring justice to the world. Or in other words... The servant will be, check this out, our judge. That's not great sounding news since, I mean, we're all guilty. Now we'll come back to this idea of what justice means, but let's hold on to this uncomfortable thought. Just keep it, move it to the back burner, but keep it on the stove, okay? That the servant God the Father is describing is our final judge. Keep that one right there. Now, we're going to look at verse 2, Isaiah 42. Here it is, 2 and 3. God says of this servant, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, this verse of the servant's song begins to describe a new characteristic about this servant, doesn't it? It begins to describe an activity of the servant or a behavior of the servant. Now, look at the juxtaposition, the opposites of this. Even though God has put his Holy Spirit on the servant, he has chosen Even though he has set his servant up to be this judge of the world and to bring justice to all the nations, to be this judge of sin, this chosen servant will not flaunt that power and strength he has been given. The servant will reign and will certainly judge. We know that. But on this side, the servant will not oppress the people he rules. Instead, God the Father says, the servant will be gentle. So gentle, in fact, that he will not break a bruised reed. So gentle that he won't put out a smoldering little candle wick. That's gentle, by the way. That's power under control. We call that meekness. So the servant has this awesome mighty power and yet is meek and lowly in how he is to rule and reign in his judgment. It doesn't take too much to understand what this is talking about, does it? These two um, paraphrases or symbolize something. It is the downtrodden. That'd be you and me, by the way. We're downtrodden. It's a vivid pictures of those who suffer who live under unjust rule on the earth. Maybe that doesn't, maybe that part doesn't uh, apply to you. But we can say they're hurting people back then, couldn't we? And we can say they're hurting people now, couldn't we? And it's certainly true, there's hurting people in the world. The point of the servant's rule will be to reign over here with power and yet care for hurting people. So let me ask, are you hurting Now, we just saw that this servant is sent to bring justice and rule to all the people of the earth that are sinful and will face certain death because of that sin. But then we see this care and gentleness. And dare we say, love? By the way, this is one of the reasons I don't believe this song is talking about Israel as a nation. Because God is clearly describing an individual person here and not an entire people group or nation. And there have been some that have said, no, no, no. What this is describing is, Paul, if you just knew history, this is describing the Persian king Cyrus. But Cyrus certainly didn't fill this bill, would he? I mean, that guy was a jerk. That brings up verse 4, as God says of his servant. God says in verse 4, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait for his law. Okay, we're back to the idea that his mission is justice, right? This servant will not grow weary or discouraged until he brings justice to the earth. That's his goal. Now, something you need to realize is that all through the Old Testament, characteristics of rulers and kings is always to bring justice. Now, if they did or not, that's up to debate. But they wanted to bring the law. That's what their source of power was. When it says the coastlands wait for his law, it's referring to the nations. When justice comes, it will bring peace. Or to say it the opposite way, when there is injustice in the world, there is no peace. The servant will persevere until he completes his mission. He will establish justice on the earth. The nations will no longer set their own rules. Instead, they will align themselves with the law of the servant. He will bring peace. How will he bring peace? By bringing justice. Now, part of Jesus' mission is to destroy the works of Satan, right? To give Satan what he deserves, which is the basic meaning of justice. Now, that's the first half of the servant song. So let's take a look at the second half of of the servant song, beginning in verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Now let's take this apart, shall we? Think through this with me. What verse 5 is saying is God places his seal of authority on what's being said. A seal of authority. Stamp that hot wax. You see in the hot wax, that's the seal of God, right? That's what God's doing with words. We've been saying this is from God, but here is this declarative message from God coming through the prophet Isaiah. And what does God say? Thus says God. He says, this is me. But then to prove he's not some other God so that the people don't misunderstand who's talking, he says, I am the Lord. Look at that in your Bible where it says L-O-R-D. Notice that it's all capitals, isn't it? When you see that in your Bible written in all caps like that, it's referring to God's covenant name. He is known by to the Jews, Yahweh. In other words, he is saying, it's me, Yahweh. The great I am. And he doesn't stop there. He says, I created the heavens. I stretched them out. Now, you want to underline stretched in your, in your Bible there. Underline stretch them out. Now, we don't have time to go here very long, but I couldn't resist the urge to point something out. <clears throat> Do you remember when people have said in your past, well, the Bible is great, but it doesn't agree with science. Those things just don't really don't fit together. They don't mesh. That's a foolish thing to say. Because long before scientists ever even realized what we call the Big Bang Theory of the universe constantly expanding, we see it here in Scripture that God tells us, yeah, I stretched out the universe. And it's still being stretched, isn't it? Okay, back to what we're talking about. God stretched the universe, the heavenly bodies, not the earth yet, the heavenly bodies. Then he says he spread out the earth And what comes from it? What's the it? The earth. So look, God just talked about the heavens, meaning the universe, everything outside the earth. Then he talks about the creation of the earth itself, where we actually live, our home. Then God claims to be responsible for everything that comes from the earth. He then says, who gives breath? Now, this is clearly talking about the Lord God who gives breath to people. He breathes life into them. Here's the word breath in the Hebrew that is translated nashama, nashama. Here it is, write this down. Breath, nashama, means movement of air. Or living being. They're the same. Does that make sense? In other words, God is animating life. He says, that comes from me. He says, I gave you life. Without that, you wouldn't have life. So in verse five, when God says, I am the one who gives breath to the people of the earth, he's literally saying, I gave life to mankind. Or you could say it this way. I am the source of life. I am where you came from. I breathe life into you, and you are dependent from me for, listen, every breath you take, every move you make. Any police fans? Oh, God bless you. You're forgiven. (laughs) Let's examine verse 5 when God says, I gave the Spirit to those who walk on it. Now, notice he gave breath to those who walk on it, But then he's referring again to the people of the earth, that'd be us, the people that walk on the earth, and then the spirit who walk in it. Notice the S in the spirit on that one is small case. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit anymore here. He's talking about the part of us that he created to have connection with him, our spirit. Now, do you remember back in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to the well, and he says to her, he says, all those, there'll be a time when those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. By the way, we know from the fall of creation uh, into sin by Adam and Eve, that first sin, original sin, we read about in John, or John, in Genesis chapter 3, our spirit is dead Before we are brought to life. Jesus says, you're being born again. Because of sin, we are cut off from God. God has just declared to his people right here, he is the only one who gives life. There is no spiritual life without him. He's the only one that can connect us again spiritually. We're cut off because of sin. And the servant will be the one who gives life. Now, here in verse 5, God has described his position in the relationship to creation. Now, he's not part of creation. You need to understand this. He stands out separate from creation. God gives us life. He sustains life. Therefore, this world is his, and his word is to be trusted. All right, look at verse 6. He says, I am the Lord, notice the capital L-O-R-D, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you and I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. In verse 5, back in verse 5, God had been explaining who he was, right? And what he has done. But then in verse 6, he does something very different. He addresses the servant now. He's talking to the servant directly. He commissions his servant. In other words, he gives his servant the marching orders that the servant must have. Make sense? Now, the purpose God gives his servant is really twofold. So write this down. The first purpose God gives to the servant is to be a covenant for God's people. Notice it doesn't say to set up a covenant. God's doing that. The purpose of God, the purpose God gives the servant is to be a covenant for God's people. This means that the servant is a covenant given to Israel. Not necessarily to just ethnic Israel, but to the true Israel of God, the children of the promise by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, what's a covenant? In its most basic sense, a covenant is simply a promise. A covenant is the seal between two or more parties. A covenant involves promises made by one or both of the covenanting parties. Now, this stretches all the way back to the covenant of redemption. The agreement within the Godhead, within the Trinity, to save God's people through the covenant of grace. The Father's plan, procured by the Son, applied by the Spirit. Now, in this case, what is required of us in this covenant is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the promised Christ. Amen? Now, He enables those chosen before the foundation of the world to do so by the gift of spiritual life, regeneration, being born again, and giving them faith. That's what we read in Ephesians 1 and 2, right? Here in our first servant song, God is saying, I'm going to give a gift of this servant who is the covenant. He is unilaterally giving us the servant unilaterally means it's coming from him alone not us biblical times covenants were often sealed with blood a sacrifice was made you could read genesis 15 a, a massive one on that now this points to Jesus being our mediator between God and man right the apostle paul tells us this in first Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time now what we're saying here is that the mediator is the covenant for the people of God the mediator is the covenant for the people of God now, back in the Old Testament, Moses, the servant of God, had been the mediator between God and the people. Drove him nutso, didn't it? Like the people were just always messing up. They, his goal was to lead people into the promised land. You remember that story? Now, in this servant song, God presents a, look, a new mediator for a new age, a messianic age. A leader that will lead his people into, check this out, the new promised land, heaven. Do you see the connection? Now look with me at the Old Testament book of Jeremiah 31 for just a moment. God the Father is once again here speaking to us through prophecy, through the prophet Isaiah. So these are God's words, Jeremiah is just writing them down. Starting in verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my covenant, or I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and it will, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least Of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Someone say amen on that. In the old covenant, the people under Moses had a responsibility to uphold the law. The covenant was like a contract and the people did not live up to their responsibility. They couldn't. In this new covenant, God will act unilaterally. He will come himself this time and uphold the covenant. Do you see that? They couldn't, so he will. This is where the whole picture of this being a Christmas song begins to come into focus. God the Father sends his son to be a servant, to be a mediator, to be a light to the world. Now the servant, who is Jesus, if you didn't realize... Takes on flesh and becomes a man. Truly God and yet truly a man. Both. The mediator. Back to Isaiah 42. Flip over there. Verse 6. Look at the very Christmassy message of this verse of the song. When God says, I will give you as a gift, he's talking to the servant. He says, I will give you my servant as a covenant For the people, a light to the nations. For the nations. Now hold that thought. What did God just say? God is going to give his servant as a gift. The servant himself will be the covenant for his people. Now this is deep water theologically. But you can get this. You can understand this. When we celebrate communion here every month. We hold that little cup of juice, don't we? What did Jesus say his blood was? The new covenant. That's a sin shields down your spine. I wish I had time to go into that part, but we need to keep going. Look at verse 6, Isaiah 42. What is the second part of the commission God gives a servant? The second part of the servant's commission is to be a light to the nations here it is the second purpose god gives to the servant is to be a light to the nations that's the second purpose to be a light to the nations all throughout the old testament As we look at the promise God makes of a Messiah coming to save the people. This is not the only place, by the way. There is this expectation that the nations of the earth would come to know God. That's all through the Old Testament. Beginning in in Genesis chapter 3. They would come to know God through his servant Israel. Now, this last line of verse 6, the servant is a light to the nations. God is sending this servant to be a light to the nations. Notice the plural form of the word nation. He's talking about a light that draws all the nations to himself. Does that mean that everyone will be saved in the end? No, that's universalism. That's a false doctrine. We know that that's not true. Rather, it means that some people from every tribe, some people from every tongue, every nation will come to God and will be drawn by the light of what? The servant. Now, why is God sending this servant to be a light to the nations? Why do that? Verse 7 answers that question. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, those are very vivid metaphors. Why are the eyes of the people of the nations blind? Why are the people of the earth considered prisoners sitting in a dungeon? Why are they sitting in darkness? Because all people we know from Romans 3.23 have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because we live in a fallen world. Each one, each one of us guilty in our own right. Everyone sins. Why? Because we're sinners. We we wrestle with wanting to do wrong. I do, you do. They're held, we are held captive by sin. Now, we know that it's talking about Jesus, right? We know that now. Do you remember a few weeks back when we were looking at John chapter eight, verse 12? We spent like two three, four weeks on this. Why? What did Jesus say he was? Let's read it together. Flip back over to John chapter 8. You know I was going to bring in John some way, didn't you? Look at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Who? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Bam! Jesus literally claims... He says, I am, the same words and in, in Greek there is the same words that we read from, from the Hebrew. I am, I am Yahweh from the Old Testament. He claims to be the light of the world. I am Yahweh, the light of the world. Now remember, not a light, the light. There's not multiple lights of the world. Muhammad is not a light of the world. Joseph Smith is not a light to the world. Now look back at Isaiah 42, verse 7. God says the servant's job will be to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison who sit in darkness. So not only will the servant be a mediator of Israel, he will also be a light to the Gentiles. That would be most of us sitting in this room. We've got a a few Jewish believers in here. Most of us are Gentiles, meaning non-Jews. This servant will also open the eyes. He's going to liberate captives held by sin. He's going to set them free from the imprisonment in darkness. Now, we can think of these things being blind, being imprisoned, sitting in the dungeon in darkness. We can understand those metaphors, can't we? That brings us to the last two verses of the song. Look in verse 8 and 9. He says, I am the Lord. He wants you to understand who's talking. This is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He's making fun, by the way, there. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Here's the coming up on the end of the song, we need to play uh, pay careful attention to here. God restates his declaration of who he is and his great power. By the way, this should scare you. He's saying, "Look, I'm the God of the universe. I gave you your breath." He points. He points out that he's going to stop. Human worship of carved idols. He's, like I said, he's making fun. He's going, you're, you're worshiping the creation. I'm the creator. Now, why does he do this? Because those are created things. They are stealing worship and praise, which rightfully belongs to him. Now, look how verse 9 lays out this meaning. The phrase, behold, former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. What God is communicating here is to say, look, in the past, I have given you my word and my word has always come true, hasn't it? He's saying, remember, I have been faithful. You have been unfaithful. God says in this servant song, I'm telling you this prophecy right now and it will become true because I declare it. It's it's not that God's looking into the future and he says, I see what's going to happen. He says, no, 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 don't misunderstand. I'm going to cause this. Do you see the difference? When God says, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. It's like God saying, you mark my words. This is what I'm going to cause to happen. He says, count on it. Now, how do we know that the servant that God is telling his people about is Jesus? How do we know that? This is how. Turn with me to Matthew. Flip over to the New Testament, chapter 12. Let me set this up for you. In this passage, a man comes to Jesus with a withered hand. It's like pulled back, you know, withered. You've seen someone like that. The Jewish leaders are standing around. It's on a Sabbath. They want to try to trap Jesus. And in a way, if they can get the crowd riled up to get them to stone Jesus right then and there for breaking the law by healing someone on a Sabbath. But Jesus asks this question to the man. He says, or he asks it to all the people and the religious leaders. He says, if you had a sheep... And it fell into a pit. And it was on a Sabbath. Would you pull that sheep out? And the answer is, of course they would. Then Jesus turns to the man with the withered hand and he says, Stretch out your hand. Well, the man can't, it's a withered hand. But right then and there, the man's hand is healed. These religious leaders they go ape. They go, they, they're so upset with this that he would heal somebody on a Sabbath. Then we read this in verse 15. Check this out. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Check this out. Behold, Hope. Jesus is saying. I'm the servant. That was prophesied by God. Through the prophet Isaiah. Do you see why this passage. In Isaiah 42. Is the first Christmas song. 750 years. Before Jesus is born. It's written. A baby is born to the Virgin Mary. The promise came in the form of a tiny helpless baby held in the arms of a teenage mom. The question I want us to wrestle with is what are we going to do with this? If it's true that the servant song was prophesied so many years ago and that Jesus has fulfilled that prophecy, it means the Messiah has come. It means we live in the messianic age. He has brought justice with him. He has made us right with God. Remember earlier when we said we've all sinned and the penalty of our sin is death. You remember that? Separation from God. Here's what Christians understand. Even though we are guilty of sin and an enemy of God and we face justice, rightfully so, God said, I love you. And I'm giving you a gift this first Christmas. Here it is. I'm going to purchase your freedom. Not because you chose me, but because I chose you. Jesus paid the debt we owe. And in turn, gave us his righteousness. So we will be called sons and daughters of Christ Jesus. Sons and daughters of God. You see, the followers of Christ. these, Those that believe in him as Savior and Lord. Every sin will be paid for from God's wrath being poured out on Jesus at the cross. But for those who deny Jesus and don't trust him, they will pay the debt of their own sin themselves. They'll pay for it for all eternity in hell. Separation from God. A true death in that it is a true separation. Here in the Christmas season, we like to think of the baby. We don't like to think of our sin, do we? More than ever, though, we must remember the suffering servant we hear about in this first Christmas song has purchased our peace with God through his life, death, and resurrection. I can't think of any more precious gift. The gift of Jesus on that first Christmas Eve. Can you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that you loved us, that you gave us the ultimate gift, the perfect gift, the perfect sacrifice of your son. Not because we deserved it, but that you have called us to life by your spirit, at your word, through the work of your son. As you just continue to pray. Just this attitude of prayer. Just talk to God yourself. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus. I want you to just thank him for that gift. Of his son right now. Just thank him. And listen if you're not a believer. Look up here at me. This idea. Of following Christ. Is Jesus the son of God? That's the question. Do you believe that? If so, change teams. Quit following the ways of your own life. You're sinful. You're messed up. You're screwed up. Follow Christ instead. It's like if you had a set of keys that run your life, turn those over to Jesus. Does that make sense? Here's what you do. You say this, God, my life is yours. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I trust Him as my Savior. Here's what's happened. Is all your sins from the past have been paid for? Now check this out. All your sins in the present have been paid for, and I know this blows my mind too. All your sins. In the future, have been paid for. You don't become unsaved because you sin. Because listen, all Christians wrestle with sin. Luther said it this way we are simultaneously sinners and saints. Sinners, in that we still wrestle with sin and temptation. We're still in this old body, and yet we are saints. We have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. What that means is that when God looks at us, our sins have been credited to Jesus. He pays for those on the cross. And we get his righteousness. So when he looks at us, we are no longer sinful. We are quite literally in Christ Jesus. So if that's you today, if you've never followed Christ before, today's your day. Follow him. Go, I change teams. There's some things you need to do. Start coming to church. Get baptized. We'll explain that, but it's a symbol of of the old you, the old dreadful dead you. We bury your old body under the water and we raise up the new you. Now listen, you still wrestle with sin, you wrestle with temptation, me too. But slowly and surely, as you follow Jesus, He is remaking you into this new person. He is writing His law on your heart. He is giving you a new life. And that new life will result in what we call spiritual fruit. You'll be able to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Will you still wrestle with sin? Absolutely. But you'll begin to lament your sin. Say, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry. So pray this. God, thank you for your giving of your son to me in my place, to take my sin and to give me his righteousness. Thank you for that first Christmas gift. God, help me to follow you in all my ways. Help me to take the steps you want me to take. Help me to become everything you have designed me to be. And God, I want to follow you, but I don't know how. Show me how. Direct my steps. Thank you for Jesus saving me. Thank you for his blood. It is in the name of Jesus Christ. We all prayed and said, Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentree Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.